Jeremiah chapter 37, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now in Jeremiah, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. So we come to chapter 37, chapters 37, 38, and 39 record uh, the final months before the fall of the city of Jerusalem uh, to the Babylonians. And uh, we're going to get a very close look in these chapters at the final king of Judah during that period, a man by the name of uh, Zedekiah. Repeatedly, he is going to uh, come, I think, a, a total of four times in, the, in these final months, as, at least as it's recorded, maybe even more uh, in all actuality. But he comes to Jeremiah over and over again, asking Jeremiah for a word from the Lord concerning what it is that's going to happen. And he kind of goes back and forth. And you, you have to remember he has, he's coming to Jeremiah over and over again, what is the Lord speaking to you? But he's also got a, a bunch of counselors and, and false prophets that have his other ear, and he's just tossed back and forth, uh, despite the fact that everything the false prophets are saying is not coming to pass, and everything that Jeremiah is prophesying is coming to pass. And he's, he's probably, if you wanted to give him a New Testament equivalent, he's kind of like uh, Pontius Pilate, who was tossed back and forth by the crowd and what he knew to do and what he should have done and what he actually did and so forth. We see very much the same characteristics in uh, Zedekiah and the same disastrous end, chapter 37. Now, King Zedekiah, the son uh, of Josiah, reigned instead uh, of Coniah, the, king of the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord which were spoken by the prophet uh, Jeremiah. So here they are. They're just uh, everything that Jeremiah, remember, he's been prophesying to them for 40 years. So it isn't like he's just showed up and they had like two weeks to process what he's saying. He's been speaking to them 40 years. Babylon wasn't even, you know, a danger. They were a blip on the radar at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. Now they are, as he said they would be, camped right out laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, and still the people will not turn. The kings will not turn to the Lord. I mean, they will not give up their sin even for their own survival. Isn't that something? That's the hold that sin can get upon our lives, isn't it? You just look at this. This is completely irrational. Who in their right minds can't see this clearly and run for their lives, give up their sin? Their sin is going to kill them, and, uh, and yet they won't. They won't do it. And, uh, and that, that, of course, this is the classic uh, three-point sermon with Samson related to sin, and its progression within our lives, the first thing that it does is it blinds, then it binds, and then it grinds. You come into it, its bondage where it's calling, uh, you know, the, uh, the shots within our lives. And so here, here they sit after all of this time. None, nobody is willing in the, in the upper levels of the government and in the nation is uh, by and large willing uh, to give any heed to what Jeremiah was speaking. must be kind of weird for Jeremiah. Everything he's speaking, prophetically for the Lord. Of course, it is coming to pass. And, and yet for him to watch the lack of impact of all of this over decades uh, among not the Philistines, not the Ammonites, not the, uh, you know, uh, uh, some other ite in the New or the Old Testament, but talking about uh, God's people. And Zedekiah the king, he then sent uh, Jehukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseah, that guy, I'll tell you, his dad, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, they were sent uh, to the prophet Jeremiah saying, pray now to the Lord our God, sent by the king to Jeremiah, pray for us now, pray to God for us, for Jeremiah, uh, now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they, he had not yet been put in prison. He will end up in prison, but he's not imprisoned yet in the siege of Jerusalem. 
And then Pharaoh's army came up uh, from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of it, they departed from uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, the kind of the geopolitical situation that's going on is that uh, the southern kingdom of Judah had entered into kind of a pact with Egypt and, and uh, made a treaty with them that they would attack the Babylonians on their flank and on their rear uh, so that they would then leave off the siege that they had upon uh, Jerusalem as a means of, you know, breaking off the, uh, the catastrophic conditions that uh, surrounded them. So this is the method that they're resorting to. And Zedekiah sends these messengers to Jeremiah and says, please pray that this will be successful. And I think that in their minds, they're thinking back into the uh, reign of Hezekiah when the Assyrians, a good king in the history of the nation of Israel, the Assyrians came and, uh, and laid siege uh, to Jerusalem. An angel of the Lord came supernaturally that night and killed 185,000 Assyrian uh, soldiers. They're, they're hoping that this will be something that God will use to, to produce their deliverance as well. Imagine, here you have God's people. They're going back to Egypt for help. You stop putting yourself in, in uh, most of us are not Jewish here tonight, but put yourself in, in the shoes of a Jew. I mean, this was the place of their bondage. This is the place that they were redeemed from. This was a place of horrible slavery for over uh, 400 years. And, and yet they will turn back to the world. Egypt is a picture of the world for us in the New Testament in terms of typology. Rather than to turn from their sin, turn to God, the God who would have readily fixed things if, if they'd turned to him, they go back to Egypt. I mean, the, 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 the willingness, the the desire to hold on to their sin, who they make their allies. I mean, it's a complete violation of the entire Old Testament, but uh, this is the place that they're in. And they're asking him, you know, Jeremiah here, pray for this, that this, uh, this will uh, work. Now, when, that, uh, when the uh, Egyptian army came against the Babylonian army and the Babylonian army uh, left off its, uh, the full force of its siege upon Jerusalem, you can imagine that all of the false prophets who had been prophesying for many, many years that Babylon will not conquer Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be the victor, and so forth and all, uh, that they were kind of probably uh, dancing a little bit, thinking this is the answer, you know. Uh, Jeremiah has been the liar, not us. Our prophecy is the prophecy uh, that is, is going to come uh, to pass. The word of the Lord, uh, then the word of the Lord came uh, to the prophet Jeremiah. He didn't just uh, respond to King Zedekiah with something that just came to mind. He waited for something from God to speak to him, and this is what he said. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, and thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt. And the idea is they'll be defeated. They're not going to conquer uh, Babylon at all. They'll go back into their own land. You have uh, you've bet on the wrong horse. And the Chaldeans shall come back, and they are going to fight against this city, Jerusalem, and they will take it, and they will burn it with fire. And thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself. It's one thing to be deceived by other people. Uh, the worst deception that can ever happen in our lives is a self-deception. And it's the Word of God that keeps us from being self-deceived. We all have a tremendous capacity for it. That's why the Bible is referred to and likened to the mirror of God's Word. It will always tell us us the truth about our situation, about what we should do, and so forth, as Jeremiah was doing with Zedekiah and, and with Judah. And so the Lord said, do not deceive yourself. And here's the self-deception they were trying uh, to uh, believe, saying the Chaldeans were surely, the Chaldeans is a reference to the Babylonians, they will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, uh, even those wounded men would rise up, every man in his tent, and they 
would burn the city, that is Jerusalem, uh, with fire. And so the, uh, here Jeremiah lets him know that the Babylonians are going to very handily dispatch the, the Egyptian army in, in all of this. And the situation was hopeless for Judah, not because they were fighting the Babylonians, but because they were fighting against God. That's what God is talking about when he says, if they were all wounded, I mean, if everyone was an amputee in, in the camp, I mean, you can just see like this great uh, scene uh, of a civil war battle where they just go in and here it is tent after tent after tent of the wounded. These people are in no shape to fight at all. God said, if the entire army of the Babylonians was made up of that kind of person in that kind of condition, they would still defeat you because you're not up against their horses. You're not up against Babylon. You are up against me. And no one can win a battle uh, with God. As we've mentioned before, in here, and, and one of the things that is being driven home or attempting to be driven home uh, to God's people here is when God is your problem, only God is your solution. And that's what Jeremiah is communicating to them. You think it's about Egypt. You think it's about Babylon. You think it's geopolitical. You think it's all of this. This is about you and God and you turning from your sin. You won't turn from your sin, and so you're on the wrong side uh, of, uh, of God. One of the things that's interesting when you look at Jeremiah, and here we are, again, as I mentioned, he's at the tail end of a 40-year prophetic ministry. And yet look at how he stands so boldly to declare uh, the word of God and a witness for God in the middle of the situation that he uh, finds himself uh, in. And uh, he just continues to speak and speak. It doesn't mean he didn't have his highs and his lows, but he continues uh, to speak the word of God. And it, it, it a tremendous personal cost to himself. And it's interesting to realize that he's not, again, speaking to the pagan, unsaved world. He is speaking to God's people in all of this. And, and the, the bravery, the boldness that it took for him to continue to speak God's message, again, not to the world, but to God's people. And, and to do that will mean not only a pushback from the world, but in, when, when they, uh, God's people go down to such a low level, it will mean a pushback even from, uh, from, God's, uh, from God's people in making uh, that stand. And so you've got to be ready for that. And, and, and uh, especially today, as so much is in play, even with, uh, you know, how Christianity is defined and, and so forth. I think it's good to ask ourselves as we look at Jeremiah now in the later chapters of his, his book and just, just ask ourselves, have, have you, or, and, I, and, I say, and, and I pose the same question to myself, have you been silenced as a Christian? Have you been silenced as a Christian? is I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been a Christian for this long. And I've witnessed to these people so many times or this amount of time and so forth and all. And now I've just become a student of the world. I watch Egypt. I watch Babylon. I watch the headlines. I watch all the everything. But making a peep related to God or what God says about a particular issue or his stand on some a particular current event, I stopped talking about that a long time ago. It's just not worth the aggravation. It's not worth the aggravation that I get from the world. Now it's not worth the aggravation and the pushback that I get uh, from Christians. And so let it all go to hell in a handbasket. I've got uh, seats. I know where I'm going at the end of it. And what we can do is we can end up uh, self-imposing a silence upon our lives that God has never intended to mark our lives as Christians. I know we have to be careful not to throw our pearls before swine. I know that when we talk with people and when we talk to them, whether we talk to them and so forth, that all of this has to be led by the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about something else, and I'm talking about it related to myself as well, to where we would look at our lives and say, I've stopped talking about God altogether. I never mention his name when he, his name ought to be mentioned. The discussion is going on. I never advance his cause. I am never salt and light in anything that will any longer be a risk to me relationally or in any other way in the world. And it's an easy thing to settle into 
to become safe and to become a spectator and to cease to have the courage to be able to stand and to say, no, that isn't true, and I'll tell you why it isn't true. Or no, that isn't the only way to look at things. This is what God says about this, or to mention the name of Jesus. And I think it's good for us to allow the Holy Spirit to search us in this way. A silence that the Holy Spirit prompts and so forth, all of that is fine. Whatever he wants to do in each of the relationships within our lives. But where we've gone silence in a a self-imposed way or a convenient way or a protective way, that is not something that's healthy. We are the salt of, of the earth. We are the light of the world. And that's not just for Jeremiah, but it's for all of us as well. It takes courage to be a Christian. It takes courage to make these stands, but the stands need to be made. And uh, it's important that somebody speaks the truth in the world today, even if the world and the generation that we're in is headed uh, for disaster in the same way that Judah was. Uh, You know, in in the Old Testament, uh, God encouraged his people to speak for him and, and, and one of the reasons that he gave was so that they will know that there was a prophet in their midst. Again, talking about speaking the word of God among God's people. They, the, God's people were still going to end in a train wreck. But God said, that's not your problem. What your problem is and what I want from you is that when it does happen, they'll be able to look back and say there were people who stood. There were people who warned. There were people who uh, testified to the truth of the word of God. And it's important for us to maintain that kind of, of a boldness. And, and in the level of, of whatever the level of sacrifice that it might mean. And uh, Jeremiah at this point was uh, paying a, a, a tremendous uh, 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 price for. The Bible teaches that uh, the fear of man is a snare, and it, and it actually uh, very much is. And it's important for us tonight. I think the Lord wants to bring it out of the passage. If, if I am in a, a place this evening where in all of the relationships within my life or in any of the relationships within my life, uh, I am more concerned about what people think of me rather than what God thinks of me in this relationship, in this situation. That's something we ought to take to the Lord tonight and get turned around under the weight and, and beauty uh, and, and refining influence of the book of, of Jeremiah. And then it happened, and speaking of the danger that he was in for continuing to represent God and speak for him, it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's uh, army. Uh, so far, the plan was working for them. The siege was laid off. And then Jeremiah, he went out of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is in the city. He's a part of the siege and inside of the city. And here's this kind of respite. And so he heads out uh, to the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. Remember, he came uh, from the area of Benjamin. His hometown was Anathoth. All right, so you've got Denaire, you've got Ripon, you've got uh, Turlock, you've got Modesto, and you've got Anathoth. And so that was his hometown. And remember, Hanamiel, his cousin, had come and sold him that piece of land. Kind of a dirty deal a little bit, but uh, God uh, had him do it because there was a, a spiritual lesson attached to it. So maybe he went back there, says, all right, here's a little bit of a break. Uh, let me go see the land I bought that I've never seen before. Or maybe he had some other kind of family business to take care of. But he attempts to, to return to his hometown, and when he was at the gate of Benjamin, uh, a captain of the guard was there whose name was uh, Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, and he seized uh, Jeremiah the prophet saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. Now, you can be sure that Jeremiah was very, very well known in Jerusalem. Everybody knew him. The guards knew him. Everybody in the government knew him. Just about everyone in the Babylonian army knows about him at this particular point as we'll see. And, uh, and so now it looks like, all right, he's got this break. He's been prophesying against uh, Judah and, and against uh, Jerusalem. Now he's going to make a break for it. Uh, nothing, uh, it, it wasn't true at all, but this was the accusation. And it was at least an excuse uh, to arrest Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he, you know, rejected and, uh, the, the charge 100%. He cried out, false 
I am not defecting to the Chaldeans, but they, uh, the, the guard did not listen to him. So, Elijah seized Jeremiah, brought him then to the princes, and therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him, and they put him in, uh, in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for uh, they had made uh, that a prison. And so, here's Jeremiah. He's arrested. Uh, and you, you, you got to, you know... How can I put this? So, so, Jeremiah is not a fan favorite at this point, and certainly not in the upper levels of, of government. There were princes that were sympathetic to him. We saw that last week, but others were very hostile to him. And so, they take him, they arrest him. This is an opportunity to mete out a beating upon him. Remember, Jeremiah is uh, pushing 60 years old. That's very old by ancient standards. And so uh, they uh, dish out a beating on him. I don't care how big or strong you are at the prime of your life. If you get a handful of guys, unless you're Bruce Lee or something, uh, you're going to get a whooping. And, uh, and so they come in and they beat him up, you know, for the prophecies that he's making. There's a lot of pent-up anger toward, uh, toward Jeremiah for, you know, his being faithful uh, to the Lord. And at this point, they not only uh, beat him, but they now uh, throw him into the prison. Now, remember, this is not a movie. This isn't something that we turn on and turn off with a remote. Uh, this is real life. This is real big people, strong people uh, that are uh, beating you uh, to a pulp. He's probably uh, put into, a, imprisoned in what would be kind of an abandoned uh, water cistern there uh, within the city, uh, a well that would have been a part of, of the home of Jonathan the scribe. Uh, the cisterns that were used, these were water supplies. Remember, this is very late in the siege. And I mean, there's a couple of years left, but all all water supplies within the city because of the siege, they're using up the water. They're, and so these, these bodies, uh, these wells, so to speak, are becoming uh, empty. And so now they use them as a prison. And it would have been like uh, pear-shaped, a small opening at the top and, and uh, in order to just be able to cover the water supply with uh, some kind of a, a rug or something like that. And then it would broaden out uh, inside. And so uh, that's the kind of thing that he was uh, lowered into. It would have been very cold, very damp and dark. And he's kind of left just to rot to death there. Uh, he can yell and scream all he wants, but he's down in a place that's pretty soundproof in, in, in terms of things. And so, absolutely miserable conditions, uh, and it reminds us that serving the Lord is not always uh, easy. It can be a fairly miserable, uh, a difficult thing, never miserable, I suppose, but a, a difficult thing uh, in, 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 in depending on uh, the morality of God's people, the morality uh, of the world. And so then, as he's put in this place, when Jeremiah entered the dungeon uh, and the cells, uh, Jeremiah remained there in this damp, dark uh, uh, condition uh, for many, many days. And so this is, uh, you know, where he is and the difficulty of the circumstance. And then King Zedekiah, uh, then Zedekiah the king, uh, learns that he's there, and he's sent, and he, he took him out of that, uh, that uh, cistern prison. And the king uh, asked him secretly in his house. And so he, gets a, he brings him secretly to, uh, to the palace. He wants a secret meeting with Jeremiah, and he said to him, is there any word from the Lord? Pink. What in the world? I mean, this guy, he just, the Pontus Pilate all the way. I mean, it, it, for 40 years, and I don't know how many years in Zedekiah's life, Jeremiah's been saying the same thing from the Lord. Now he comes and he asks again, is there any word from the Lord? And he keeps hoping God will change his mind. But the only message that, Jer that Judah's ever going to hear and Jerusalem's going to hear is you need to repent of your sin and then this thing will get turned around. And Zedekiah doesn't want to do that, but he keeps checking in with God to see if God has kind of changed his mind on things. He never does. He never has in my life. I suspect that's your testimony as well. He can be quite stubborn in this regard. And, and so th this is the 
the request that is made. And Jeremiah said, uh, yes, I do have a word from the Lord. Uh, and then he said to him, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. You wanted a new message? There is no new message. Uh, in your current uh, condition, that, uh, that unrepentant, you are going to be taken, not only Judah, but you as the king are going to be taken and given into the hand of the king uh, of Babylon. The interesting thing about this is that Zedekiah, he knows Jeremiah is a prophet. He knows he's a prophet. Why would he keep going to this guy? Why wouldn't he just blow him off and just say, that nutcase over there and all, and all I'm just going to keep listening to the guys, that it, all of my magicians and all of my seers and all of these guys that are around me, these false prophets, they tell me what I like to hear and they keep me kind of perky and all. In, in his core, he knows they're all liars. He knows they're not telling him the truth. It's not like it took a lot of faith to understand that because, again, Jeremiah starts prophesying about Babylon coming and taking Jerusalem when Babylon is just the speck uh, in, in the heart of the Middle East. And then here they are. They've grown into this world power, and now here they are uh, invading the world, and now here they are in Judah, and now here they are in Jerusalem. There's no denying the fact that Jeremiah is the only one who's been right all along, and nobody else has been right, and yet still he won't uh, turn here. But here in all of his actions here is the confession that he realized there's only one prophet right now uh, that can be trusted in Jerusalem, and it's Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah plainly confronts the king uh, with this, this very line of thought. And he said to King Zedekiah, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against this people that you have put me in prison? What have I done that you have imprisoned me to be treated this way? Not by the Babylonians. They would never treat me this way. But you, God's people, you've put me in prison for speaking for God. What kind of a place is this? What kind of a kingdom are you managing? And the idea is, tell me, one prophecy in 40 years that failed. Tell me one thing I've ever done wrong against you. Now, all I've ever done is speak the word of God uh, to you. And he confronts him. Again, there's a tremendous boldness on Jeremiah's uh, part here in doing that. The king, this king is, is uh, you know, willy-nilly as he is, you know, never know what mood he might have been in. And, uh, but Jeremiah finally just uh, speaks it to him. He says in verse 19, Now where are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you, won't even enter into this land? And so he confronts uh, Zedekiah with the, the pure logic of all of this, that God is speaking to you, and not through, uh, through me and not through these other men. And therefore, please hear now, O my Lord, uh, the king, please let my petition be accepted before you. So Jeremiah, he's, he's speaking. Uh, he's, he has a favor that he wants to ask of Zedekiah. And, he, you know, he's tossed. He's in a, in a hard place. He isn't a spirit being. He's, he's got a body. Life is very, very hard for him. And he made the request, do not make me return to the house of uh, Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Don't let him put me back down into that cistern that is damp and cold and all of that. No food being lowered to him. He says, I know if I go back there, I'm going to die. Would you? I've spoken God's word to you. You know it. That's why you come to me. Now, would you give me this, this thing? And then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison uh, associated with Jerusalem, get him out of that, uh, that cistern, and not only that he would be put in the court of the regular prison, but that he would be, uh, they should give him uh, daily a piece of bread from the Baker Street until all the bread of, in the city was gone, and thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So, now, Zedekiah, you don't know, I mean, you have not because you asked not, you know, with, with even with a bad king, how much our king, and, and so he asked for it, and Zedekiah uh, gives him that. Not only gives him deliverance from the cistern, but then gives him bread and says, make sure he's fed uh, until uh, whatever happens here. And, uh, and, and he talks about uh, the bread from uh, the Baker Street. You know, if you ever uh, travel or even, even, even in towns here in the valley or, or near to us, sometimes you'll 
see a street and it's named Baker Street, or you'll see a street and it's called Church Street. And typically those streets have been named after an industry that once marked that street in ancient times. And so uh, most often if you go to London or you go someplace like that and you go to Baker Street, this is where all the bakeries were. This is where the bread was baked. This is where it was sold uh, way back when and so forth. This is the street they built all of the churches on, you know, when the town was, was built and so forth. So this is the condition that Jeremiah is left in now at the end of chapter uh, uh, 37. Chapter 38. Now, uh, Shephatiah, that's, it's nice. Instead of Aniah, we've got Atiah, just for a little variation here on uh, the, the mess with my dental work. Now, uh, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of uh, Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah. Now, this is interesting. When you read this, sometimes you just think, oh, brother, oh, come on, <laughs> just go right over. Okay, you don't have to memorize the names, but I do think it's very good that when we read the Bible and we see this kind of information, that we say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. I can kind of skim over it. But one of the things that it is communicating to us is that what we are reading is a historical account. And I've mentioned it before, but it bears uh, mentioning again. Sometimes you'll listen to people and they'll say, the Bible is just this book that's full of of myths, or it's these things that men have made up and so forth and all. Whenever you hear somebody talk about that, you know immediately, at least I do, I'm talking to someone who has never read the Bible. It never doesn't read like a myth, not from one end of the book to the other. Nothing looks man-made or contrived. In fact, what it reads as is an actual, uh, history and periods in human history. And, and that's what these names, these places, these dates, all of these kind of things are intended to communicate to us. This is a historical book of what God has done and God has said and God's work in human history. And so when these men had heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken to uh, all of the people saying, thus says the Lord, he who remains in the city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, but he who goes over to the Chaldeans shall live. This is what Jeremiah was prophesying. His life will be as a prize to him and he shall live. And thus says the Lord, uh, further quoting Jeremiah, this city shall surely be given into the hand hand of the king of Babylon's army, uh, which shall take it. And so the, the, pre, the princes didn't like these prophecies, and so they said uh, to the king, please let this man be put it to death, for thus he weakens the hands of the men of war who remain in the city and the hands of all of the people by speaking such words to them. For this man does not seek the welfare of his people, but their harm. This is interesting, isn't it? So, uh, you, you know, the, the idea of, you know, good being evil and evil being good. Jeremiah is the only one who's doing good for the country just about at this particular point. And, uh, and so, but they don't like him. He's breaking morale. We need morale. You can imagine on a natural level, we need these fighting men to be strong. They've got to have the belief that we can beat the Babylonians. We can hold them off. And Jeremiah's uh, message is uh, eroding that, uh, that kind of, uh, of, uh, of confidence. And, and so they come to Zedekiah. Let's get rid of this guy. In fact, let's really get rid of this guy. Let's put him to death. And then Zedekiah, the king that makes such promises out of one side of his mouth and then breaks them just as quickly. Uh, The king said to, uh, to them, look, he's in your hand for the king can do nothing against you. What a wimp. What a weasel and whatever other W you can come up with that isn't swearing. Um, So he he won't stand up to these guys. He's one thing while he's facing Jeremiah, and he's kind of the guy that just, he... Uh, he, he becomes like the last person that he's talked to. He has no moral convictions. He has uh, n- no principles that make up his core at all. It's just, uh, what's the easiest thing to do in this conversation? 
And so they ask for the death uh, of Jeremiah, and uh, he probably wants Jeremiah dead at this particular point in time as well. Doesn't want Jeremiah's blood on his hand, so I'll give it over to the princes. Uh, they'll do what they do, and, and it's all off of my plate and my responsibility. And so they took Jeremiah, and they cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, uh, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah... Uh, down into that dungeon, probably another cistern again, and they did it with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire, mud, muck, uh, uh, Houston right now in terms of uh, what's gone into those, those homes with that, that terrible storm. And so Jeremiah sank in the mire. Uh, so here you've got, again, you've got a siege that's going on, these things that were normally holding water, and uh, now the water is gone. They've used up the water. Now there's just mud at the bottom. And so you notice what they do when they put him into the dungeon. Uh, they don't walk him down the stairs into the dungeon. Uh, he doesn't walk down a ladder into the dungeon. They lower him into the dungeon by way of ropes, they put a rope around him and drop him down into the middle of that. And he is within the mire, whether, he, whether the mire comes up uh, to his knees or his waist or to his chest, we don't know. But we know in just a moment it's going to take 30 men to, to pull him out of this one day. And so they put him there in that place not in order that, you know, he would suffer for a little while and, and, they, and, and they would shut him up. The intent of this is exactly what the princess said it would be. It's to kill him. But nobody wants to have the blood on their hands of slitting Jeremiah's throat or killing him in some way with a spear or a sword or something. We'll just put him in this dungeon. He will uh, rot to death and starve to death very, very quickly, out of sight, out of mind, and nobody will ascribe his death uh, to us. Problem is, is that God watches all of this stuff. There are no secrets, and God was watching this as well. And so here he is. He's lowered down. This guy, faithful to God, loves God, serving God, obeying God and all of this, and he gets lowered down into this cistern filled with mud. Now, when Abed-Melech, one of the just overlooked heroes of the Old Testament, the Ethiopian uh, and, and uh, one of the eunuchs. So here we come to an Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch. We know about the one in the New Testament, right, that Philip witnessed to on, as he was returning to Ethiopia following worship there in Jerusalem. And he was a good Ethiopian eunuch. This one is a, a good Ethiopian eunuch as well. Uh, he was in the king's house and, uh, and, and a, a eunuch was a eunuch. So you can go Google it if you don't know uh, what's going on there. But what it, it, it essentially means is this guy was at least a very uh, close counselor to the king or, or he was a, a cabinet member of the king. And if the, the king, uh, for fear of sexual immorality among the men that surrounded him with his harem or with his wives would often uh, make men into eunuchs in order for them to be, uh, have a position of power and, and not be a threat to, uh, you know, to that side of his life and so forth. And so here he is, obviously a slave of some kind, uh, brought from Ethiopia, and, uh, but a, a, an outstanding man rises to a, a high position there within the king's house. And, and he, uh, he hears uh, what it is that they had done to Jeremiah, they put, that they put him in the dungeon and uh, when the king was sitting at the gate uh, and, and th that this, uh, all of this had, had occurred. And so uh, he hears uh, about all of this and, and in the privacy of his own heart, he recognizes just the absolute injustice uh, of all of this. And he has a, 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 a reverence for God. We're going to see it in a little bit. And he has a strong sense of right and wrong. And even though he is an advisor or a friend of the king, uh, the, at this point he's being pushed to a place where he can't keep silent. He has to say something. These are his convictions. This is the quality of the man that he is. Well, listen, when you were, were an, a, a eunuch to a king or a counselor or a cabinet member, 
member to confront the king with any wrongdoing on his part automatically puts your life in jeopardy. So it's a big thing for him to speak up in the way that he's going to speak up. But with a man like Ebed-Melech, and God bless them, whether it's a man or a woman, I think he looks at the situation and he realizes, if I don't say anything, I will not be able to live with myself for the rest of my life. I have to do something about what I see happening to this prophet of God, uh, even at risk uh, to, uh, to myself. And, and so he goes and he intercedes for Jeremiah before the king. Uh, he, the king was sitting at the gate of Benjamin. Abed-Melech went out, to the, out of the king's house uh, from his responsibilities. He spoke to the king saying, my lord the king, these men have done evil. Wow. Okay. This is a guy who's been stirred at his core. What's happening here is not a mild, uh, you know, injustice. Uh, this is not uh, he, all of the politically correct terms or the soft terms that he could use. Uh, this is what is within his heart. What is happening to this man is nothing less than evil. I mean, he's putting his life at risk to do this. Uh, these men, because they could readily do to him what they'd done to Jeremiah. My Lord, the king, these men have done evil and all that they've done to Jeremiah, the prophet. And you notice that he doesn't just say Jeremiah. He recognizes Jeremiah to be a prophet uh, of God. Though he's from Ethiopia and brought into the land of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Egypt, I mean, into in Judah, somewhere along the way, he has a respect for God and God's prophets that's greater than uh, the children of Israel, whom they have cast into the dungeon, and he is likely to die from hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city." You leave him in that hole, he's going to die. Now, this is the very thing that Zedekiah wanted to get around. He gave him to the princes so the princes would do this so that the trail of responsibility would not come back to the king. And yet anybody, Ebed-Melech here and anybody else that wanted to look at it would look at it and say, you can't handle that that way, Pontius Pilate. You can't wash your hands in this way. You've got the authority. Don't you realize that everything that happens on this day is going to reflect upon you for all of history? You can't do this to Jeremiah and think that this isn't going to be traced back to something that you either allowed or could have avoided, and he confronts him. You're responsible here, and you need to make the right decision in, in all of this. He will die in, in that hole in the ground uh, and uh, no more bread uh, within the city, and so he intercedes here for Jeremiah before uh, the king. Now, of course, self-preservation, and we all know a lot about that because it's a significant part of each of our lives and, and a significant part of our, our flesh. Of course, self-preservation would have meant just kind of laying low here and shrugging your shoulders. And if you're in Ebed-Melech's place and saying, what's a servant going to do? I mean, I do the best that I can. I pray for the king and, uh, every day. And, I, you know, I chime in and I kind of tell him what I think when he asks for my opinion and uh, in, 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 so forth. But here I am. I'm a comparative nobody. And what influence could I ever have related to uh, the, the, the situation? And I think most of us remember uh, Edmund Burke's famous saying, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And uh, this was, uh, here is Ebed-Melech long before Edmund Burke, uh, living out what Edmund Burke warned uh, the world uh, against. And, and, uh, and, and uh, he stands up as, uh, as a good man. I think the temptation can often be for us, and I, I don't doubt that perhaps it was a part of, of Ebed Melech's temptation as well, to just look at all the injustice that was going on around him or goes on around us, and uh, just to remain silent in the face of it, uh, and active in the face of it, hold our breath and just say, I hope it doesn't come near me. I know it's gobbling up 
this nation or that nation or this race or that race or this socioeconomic group or that socioeconomic group or this, uh, you know, powerful group or powerless group or whatever. And then we just kind of look and say, all right, I don't like it, uh, but I'm not going to say anything. But in the deepest of my heart of hearts, I just hope that that what's going on here, the injustice of all of this doesn't reach into my household and into my life. But if everybody did that, then how in the world would evil ever be stopped and who would begin uh, to make the stand against evil? And I think it's an important uh, statement in our world today. And I'm not talking about where we are politically in the world and, uh, or the big fight that is going on. I'm talking about morally where we are in this nation and spiritually where we are in this nation. We're, we are moving, if we are not fully entrenched in uh, evil, and it needs to be resisted, and there needs to be a stand made against it. What people believe and what they think, it's the world's worst time for God's people to go silent in terms of the history of our our nation. We've enjoyed the benefits of a Judeo-Christian ethic, and then now they're threatened, and now it's time for us to make a stand in, in a way that maybe nobody's had to make a stand since the original uh, people knew God made a stand to afford us these freedoms and to uh, set in motion a, a biblical morality that's marked our nation for over 200 years. And there's, it's important to look and not hold our breath and say, will the rapture happen first or will this happen? But as long as it doesn't come into my family, as long as it doesn't affect my paycheck, as long as it doesn't come into my city and take over. But someone has to lead a stand against evil. And if nobody does that, then who is it that people can then come in behind that man or woman and make a stand with them? Whether in a school or in a workplace or in a city, or in a nation, or wherever it might be. Someone has to have the kind of convictions that an Ebed-Melech has here where they say, I cannot live with myself. Forget about what others think about me. I can't live with myself if I do not make a stand here. At this point, they have pushed too far. And the importance of doing that. Another quote that's very famous in this regard was Martin Niemöller, very uh, prominent Protestant pastor who uh, emerged as a, uh, an outspoken public foe of Adolf Hitler and uh, spent the last seven uh, years of Nazi rule in, in concentration camps himself. Later in his life, he, he spoke famously of the danger uh, of doing nothing in the face of evil, doing nothing in the face of injustice. And he wrote, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, but I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And here is a man, here is a a pastor in Nazi Germany, ends up getting arrested over it. But he recognized that even before he made his stand, this progression that was occurring, not within Nazis, but within the church in Nazi Germany in those days. The idea was, okay, those people are getting in prison now, but it's not me yet. Those people are getting in prison now unjustly, but it's not me yet. Now it's these people in the hope that it won't won't reach. But uh, that's how evil gets emboldened and how it gets strengthened. And what a beautiful uh, stand he makes. One of the great things about Ebed-Melech, I hear it spoken uh, all the time related to Christian ministries, Uh, a lot of times related to uh, things that we look at and we say, well, the government can never change, or, uh, you know, there's a separation of church and state, and we can't cross that, and they'll never let us do this as Christians. And I hear Christian leaders that are within those realms of public education or in university, or they are in government and all, and how often all it takes is just someone to make a stand and say, can we do this? Uh, Can we help you here? Can we do this? Can we uh, hold this kind of a meeting or whatever it might be? And you never know till you ask. 
and, and how often uh, the answer comes immediately back as a yes. And here is Ebed-Melech. He has no idea what the response is going to be, but he would never know unless he asked, unless he spoke up. And, and so uh, he did. And uh, doing the right thing could be very, very risky business depending on the moral climate uh, of a nation. And our moral climate is not good at the moment, but it still needs to be uh, done. And so this is the thing that he uh, presented there to the king. And then the king commanded. And here's this uh, wonder of wonders what, where you catch him. And I have no doubt that God was involved in all of this as well. And the king commanded Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian saying, take from here 30 men with you and lift the prophet out of the dungeon before he dies. You have not because you asked not. He asked, the king says, do it. And not only you go and get him out of that, but take 30 men with you because that's what's it going to take to put a rope around a guy and bring him up out of that kind of mire. So if you've ever tried to run through mud or something like that, uh, to pull yourself out of it, you'll leave your galoshes or whatever it might be behind. And uh, so, well, I mean, how deep is he? Is he at his, his knees? Is he at his waist? Is he at his chest? And it takes 30 guys to pull him out of a hole like that? Uh, he, was, he was in deep. And so the king ordered uh, and gave permission to Ebed-Melech uh, to, uh, to uh, step in and, and uh, take care of Jeremiah in this way. And so Ebed-Melech took the men with him, and they went into the house of the king under the treasury. They're making their way to this uh, pit uh, that Jeremiah is in. But before they go there, Ebed-Melech wants to go over to the area of the treasury where there's some old clothes and old garments that are uh, lying around there, some old rags. He got them, and then he let down, here's the purpose, he let uh, them down, all of these uh, garments and clothes, he let them down by ropes into uh, the dungeon to Jeremiah, and then Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, said to Jeremiah, please put these old clothes and rags under your armpits. Uh, under the ropes so that you can put the rope then over them because this is going to be a lot of suction power pulling you out of here and we don't want to pull you in half and Jeremiah did so. Now remember, we're at the end of this siege. Everybody is skin and bones. Everybody is skin and bones but the king. I mean, if you saw a picture of Jeremiah, he'd look like a rail. You could count his ribs and now he's been thrown in this pit and even closer to starvation. So uh, to take and try and pull him out, just rope against no muscle, no substantial flesh, anything like that would have maybe broken a rib, might have, you know, torn him in some kind of a way. Amazing here. The, the, not only that Ebed-Melech would think to rescue him, but this kind of detail. Isn't it amazing? I think we've all been in this place in life where we're in a moment of, of um, uh, uh, peculiar or a special uh, vulnerability in, in a, some situation in life. I think hospitals are amazing in this way. I, I, whenever, you know, I'm thankful for all of you that are in a medical professional and you work somewhere in these hospitals. I mean, you've got people that are CEOs. You've got, you got every kind of person in the world in one of those little nightgowns uh, that they got to wrap around their backside to go to the bathroom and all. And uh, apart from what they're facing in terms of the medical situation, but there's these places in life where we feel especially vulnerable and where an act of kindness goes a long way and it's never forgotten. And I, and I know that Jeremiah never forgot what Ebed-Melech did, not only in pulling him out of the hole, but the whole act of kindness related to the rags. I know that God didn't forget it. I know God noticed it because God is going to reward him for that. These little things that we think are nothing. And sometimes people never acknowledge, they never say anything, but God keeps it alive in their hearts. And it's a testimony to the Lord. And, and it, gives, uh, it gives us a place where we can then speak into their lives if they don't know about the Lord or the things of the Lord in a way that we wouldn't otherwise have. A little thing, a little tiny thing in just the right moment is so, so powerful. And I think it's one of the lessons 
sons of Ebed-Melech uh, here. And so they pulled him up out and, and uh, out of that pit, and Jeremiah remained uh, in the court of the prison. And then Zedekiah the king sent and had Jeremiah the prophet uh, brought to him at the third entrance uh, of the house of the Lord. And what does this mean? It's kind of a secret place. They didn't go to one of the main gates and openings to the, uh, to the, uh, the temple area. Uh, King Zedekiah wants to have a confidential, a private meeting uh, with Jeremiah once again. Mo Larry or Curly would have poked him in the eye with both of the things, but uh, this, is, this is the wavering of the man. I mean, the, Judah really needed a strong, godly, principled, uh, moral king, and they, they did not have one at all in Zedekiah. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you something and hide nothing from me. What kind of a game is this? You know, if I what, will you? And what? Well, tell me first before I can't make, you know, this kind of a, the, what your kids try to do. Dad, will you give me whatever I ask for? Yeah, right. I'll just give you whatever you ask for. Do I look like a stupid idiot? You think you're smarter than me at seven years old? Come here. Why, I oughta. So, you know, this is nonsense. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I declare it to you, will you not sure? Uh, it, 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 Jeremiah says to Zedekiah, listen, we've been through this a lot of times. If I declare to you whatever it is without hiding to you the thing that God wants me to say to you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you advice, will you not listen? What, are you coming to ask me something with a different attitude than any time uh, before? And so Zedekiah the king swore secretly to Jeremiah saying, as the Lord lives, nonsense, nonsense. Just God talk from a guy that didn't care about God or obeying God at all. I look at this and I just, th I just pray concerning myself. Let me never speak about God or speak about the things of God beyond what the reality that they are in my own life. This guy had no more uh, right to declare God to be alive uh, because he, than the man in the moon. He didn't live one hour of his life like God was alive. If he believed that God was alive, he would have repented uh, the first time he was confronted with his sin. This is just God talk, uh, nonsense gobbledygook. As and that's how I feel about it, by the way. And uh, as the Lord lives, he said, who made our very souls. Nonsense! All right, I'll stop. I will not put you to death, nor will I give you into the hand of these men who seek your uh, life. I, I protect your life. Just be honest with me straight. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, uh, the God of, uh, of hosts, the God of the angelic armies, the God of Israel, if you surely surrender to the king of Babylon, uh, it, it, it princes, then your souls shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. That's a pretty good promise for where they are and where Zedekiah is. But, ah, uh, there it comes in. But if you do not surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. It's the same message, Zedekiah. You asked for it. I gave it to you again. How do you know it's from the Lord? Because you know God speaks through me. Everything he said has come to pass. But this prophecy is completely in line with all of the, the promises of blessing and the promises of cursings as they're recorded in the book of Jeremiah spoken to the Jewish people. It's consistent with God's revelation in his word. And Zedekiah the king said to Jeremiah, this was his excuse. He said, I'm afraid of the Jews who have defected already to the Chaldeans. If I surrender now, they're going to deliver me into their hands. Uh, the, the Babylonians will and these uh, Jews that have escaped, they, they'll beat me up, they'll abuse me. And Jeremiah said, they shall not deliver you. Please obey the voice of the Lord which I speak to you. In other words, your, your concern is unfounded. And so it shall be with you and your soul shall live. 
But if you refuse to surrender, this is the word that the Lord has shown me. Now behold, all of the women, you're concerned about what people will think about you and what they'll do to you. If you don't surrender, then all of the women uh, who are your servants in your palace, who are left in the king of Judah's house, shall be surrendered to the king of Babylon's princes. And those very women shall say, as your wives, as your children are now being pulled out of the palace, they shall say to you, your close friends have set upon you and prevailed against you. Your feet have sunk in the mire and they have turned uh, and they have turned away again. You will be mocked by your servants if you do not repent. And it comes to the end that you seem to be determined uh, to head to. And, and they mock all of the counselors here that Zedekiah was listening to when he should have seen and anybody could have seen that they were, they were uh, leading him into a mire. They were leading him into uh, a disaster. And they shall surrender all of your wives and children to the Chaldeans, and you shall not escape from their hand, but shall be taken by the hand of the king of Babylon, and you shall cause. This is personal responsibility. You're the head honcho here. You have the responsibility. As Truman said, the buck stops with you. He didn't know about Truman yet. But you're the one that's responsible here. You shall cause this city to be burned with fire. And again, Jeremiah is very, very straightforward uh, with, uh, with Zedekiah here. And then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. Keep our conversation private, keep it confidential, and uh, I'll protect your life. And he went further and, and, and coached Jeremiah as to what he should say when the princes came to him and inquired, what kind of a conversation did you have with the king? I mean, nothing's being kept secret at this point in time. Everybody's uh, looking out uh, for themselves in the direness of the situation, and information is very valuable. He knows that the princes are going to come immediately to Jeremiah and ask, what was the conversation with the king? What did he reveal to you? What's his frame of mind? What's he going to do if the princes hear that I have talked with you and they come to you and say to you, declare to us now what you have said to the king and also what the king said to you, do not hide it from us and we will not put you to death. Well, he's got death threats from all kinds of angles. Speak to us. Tell us honestly what happened or openly and uh, otherwise we're going to kill you. And then you shall say to them, I presented my request before the king uh, that he would not make me return to Jonathan's house uh, to uh, die there. And then all of the princes came to Jeremiah uh, and they asked him as, uh, as was predicted. And he told them according to all of these words that the king had commanded. And so they stopped speaking uh, with him and for the conversation had not been heard. Now Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken and he was there when Jerusalem was taken. So that was kind of his last stop. So Jeremiah here um, it, it is, is Zedekiah speaks to him and says, now here's what you should tell these people. As you read it, it can look as if uh, Zedekiah is calling him to kind of to fib related to the real uh, conversation that occurred and so forth. Um, I, I, it, it seems to me that in you know, the conversation isn't detailed for us out in, in every word that is spoken and in, in the entire uh, length of it. But I don't think it's unlikely that, that we don't have a, a complete record here of the full conversation between Zedekiah and Jeremiah, but that the conversation probably did include a request by Jeremiah not to be returned to the house uh, of Jonathan as well as what the king wanted from uh, Jeremiah here. And uh, so Jeremiah uh, let them know the part uh, of the, the conversation that the king said, you can make this public, but keep the rest of it private. And basically what Jeremiah does is he, he does what all leaders have to do in that kind of a situation, and that is you, you have to honor confidentiality. And, and uh, so he does. Well, we'll stop there uh, tonight. We'll pick things up, uh, not next week, because we'll enjoy water baptism and, and communion and a great time as a church family next week on the Sunday night, but we'll pick it up again the following week. Let's stand together and we'll uh, close in prayer.
Father, we, as we look through this, we see the good and the bad and the ugly, uh, the best and the worst of human beings, in a, as is always the case in, in a circumstance that is this raw and this dire. And we thank you for these flashes of, of beauty in men like Ebed-Melech and what we see in Jeremiah here, continuing to be strong in the face of, of life-threatening opposition. And we pray for our own lives this, night, this evening as we dismiss that you would continue to speak to us from these two chapters. And Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for each one of us in this room and we do for one another that if we have imposed upon ourselves some kind of a, a, a self-protective silence related to right and wrong and related to you and representing you, and if in some way we have fallen even marginally short, much less far short of, of being salt and light and speaking, Lord, your truth to to people as we have the opportunity that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and freshly give us wisdom and give us boldness, Lord, and give us the way to see things right from your throne and, and what to speak in these situations. We readily recognize and, and confess to you that we see the danger that you see so easily, and that is if we all become silent all at the same time, then who's going to speak? And Lord, we confess our capacity uh, to do that, for the body of Christ to become silence in mass all at once, Lord, at the very time that we need to be speaking for you. We can't speak for the rest of the world or the rest of the body of Christ. We just ask for our own lives, that when you want us to speak up, Lord, in the coming week and the remainder of our pilgrimage, that you would prompt us by your Holy Spirit, and then with that prompting, give us the grace to step out in what it is that you're calling us to say. We love to be salt and light. We love the title being ascribed to us. Lord, the reality of it is much greater, and we pray that you continue to lead us out into the fullness of that reality in this time in human history that you have called us to be the Jeremiah that we need to be. And we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.